Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin. We all have that crazy relative who believes outrageous conspiracy theories or a lot of so-called facts that aren't supported by the evidence. This person seems to live in an entirely different universe than those of us who are sane, right? The truth is, we're all misinformed to some degree, says Dr. Matthew Mata, a political science professor who studies misinformation. He joins me to talk about why people are motivated to find information that supports their beliefs instead of the truth, and how we can have the most success reaching those who have refused to listen to others. He also shares helpful tips such as, if you want to know something about the curvature of the Earth, ask a flat earther, and why it's important to realize how much you don't know. Well, I know an important part of what you do involves the Dunning-Kruger effect. Can you explain that? Yeah, so the Dunning-Kruger effect is psychologically what we refer to as meta-ignorance. It's ignorance of one's ignorance, not understanding one's lack of ability to do a particular task, their knowledge in a particular area, relative to what they actually know. So my colleagues and I published a study back in in 2018 that looked at the Dunning-Kruger effect in relation to anti-vaccine misinformation acceptance. What we did was we gave people a factual knowledge test about the origins of of autism. We found that people who did the worst on that test tended to think that they know comparatively more than doctors and medical scientists about where autism comes from. And if you were the type of person who believed that you knew more than doctors and medical scientists, you were more likely to accept misinformation about vaccines, about the safety of childhood vaccines. So the Dunning-Kruger effect, and, and more generally what people know about politics, about vaccines, about climate, et cetera, all of those things are influenced by what people know about those subjects. But I wanna be really careful here to say that knowledge isn't the full story. People can be misinformed and knowledgeable about a particular subject. In fact, we often find that it's sometimes the people who know the most about a subject who are the most likely to be misinformed. What these people are doing is they're using their superior knowledge of a topic and using the facts, weaponizing the facts, we like to say, in service of their prior beliefs. So I'll give you an example of how something like this plays out. And this is what psychologists refer to as motivated reasoning. So we see the process of motivated reasoning play out, for example, with respect to highly politicized issues, highly politicized sources of misinformation. And in a really influential study by Dan Kahan, who was my postdoctoral advisor back at Yale Law School, Dan Kahan and and his colleagues found that people who were the most knowledgeable about climate change were, if they were Democrats, more likely to believe that the climate is changing and that it's caused by human activities, which is something that most social scientists would expect given the partisan breakdown of who believes what on that issue. But for Republicans, it was actually the most knowledgeable Republicans who were the most likely to reject the world. They use their superior knowledge to make that the reality. You know, I teach a class here at Oklahoma State about misinformation, why people believe it, what its consequences are, et cetera. 
one of the things I tell my students is that if you want to know something about the curvature of the earth, ask a flat earther because they know everything about it. They know more than I'll ever know in my life or ever care to know in my life. Uh, and that's because they are sufficiently motivated to see the world in a particular way. They use their superior understanding of the facts to see the world as such. And so all of this is to say that while knowledge absolutely can play a role in shaping misinformation endorsement, we typically tend to see that on issues that are not particularly politicized. And at the time that my colleagues and I were writing about childhood vaccine misinformation, vaccines were politicized, but arguably not as much as they are today, especially mm -hmm. with the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. I would be very interested to do this study again and to see whether or not we see more partisan asymmetries and motivated reasoning going on. That's all very fascinating to me. And it reminds me of an argument that I believe that with the internet and 24-hour news and everything we have now, you can find a news source that will tell you what you want to believe mm -hmm. very easily. And that's what a lot of people, maybe most people do. Exactly. Uh, we have a technical term for this in psychology. We call this biased information search. Mm. If people are sufficiently motivated to want to believe something, they will consult sources that tell them what they want to hear. And we also refer to something known as biased assimilation, which is the tendency to, when we encounter information, give more credit to the information that tells us what we want to hear mm. versus that which tells us what we don't want to hear. And we see this type of thing playing out all the time throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. A couple of months ago, my colleagues and I published a paper where we showed that people who were exposed to more misinformation about the origins of coronavirus, as well as some of its effects, which tended to be more prevalent on right-leaning media platforms, were more likely to then accept misinformation and to take action on it. So again, one of the things I tell my students in my class on misinformation, aside from the fact that everybody is to some degree misinformed, Republicans, Democrats, and independents alike, I'll do it. Uh, but when people are misinformed, that's not necessarily a problem. Misinformation can itself be benign. What matters is that people take action on it, if they put what they believe into action. And we see that play out in the COVID-19 pandemic when people who are misinformed refuse to vaccinate, if they refuse to wear a mask in, in public spaces, if they're not vaccinated per the new CDC guidelines, if they reject the advice of doctors and medical experts. That's when misinformation becomes problematic. And that's why my colleagues and I are so interested in studying. You and I are going to talk in a minute about sort of talking to people who are misinformed. But I'm curious about best practice for somebody to make sure they aren't misinformed, if that's a goal of yours. If you want to make sure you're actually getting the truth, what is the best way to do that? Yeah, so I actually recorded a video for Oklahoma State a couple of months ago where I walked through some best practices before the 2020 election mm -hmm. um, for doing this. So if you're interested in learning more, I would, I would highly encourage folks to check out that video. But, but one of the the best things that we can do is to try to 
read and digest information from multiple sources to corroborate, to see whether or not what we see being reported on our favorite platform is also being reported in other areas, being verified by people who we would consider to be experts in that area, and doing very basic and kind of more technical things. Do, let's say we're reading a web page. Do the links on that web page citing scientific studies actually direct you to a scientific study? Sometimes they don't. Have fact checkers verified that claim and have they outlined their reasoning for doing so? It's not enough to say fact checkers say X is false. You know, we want to know okay, well, why do they think it's false? What's going on here? Those are the types of things we should do prior to, to rendering a decision about whether or not we want to accept any piece of information as true. But that's really hard to do. We are encountering lots of information over the course of the day. And we often rely on what psychologists refer to as heuristics or cues to help us make those decisions. If my good friend is typically a pretty reliable source or someone who I generally trust, I might not want to do all of that work to verify a claim. So what I would recommend is before you share or take action on a piece of information, make sure to verify that it's correct. We're never, as people who have limited time and limited attention spans, myself included, every person listening to this included, we're never going to be able to verify every single thing we see as true. But if you're going to take action on it, you're going to share it with people, you're going to do something about it, make sure that you've made some effort to verify it. Yeah. And you talk about having a friend who's usually reliable. I know people, uh, I believe that's called the halo effect, right? Where people will take, say, Albert Einstein said this, mm -hmm. when it very well might not be something Einstein said at all, or wasn't in Einstein's uh, area of expertise. But we'll put those words in his mouth, or Abraham Lincoln's, or Mark Twain's, or whoever. And obviously, it's brilliant, because he said it, um, mm -hmm. which, which is always fascinating, because it's like, well, uh, you know, maybe he said that, maybe he didn't, but um, that, that doesn't mean it's right, even if he did say it. Yeah, you know, the source of a message matters. Absolutely. We want to consider messages as valid that come from people who we would consider to be subject area experts. But the source itself does not necessarily imply that a claim is correct mm. or, or factually accurate. There are medical professionals who hold anti-vaccine views, not a lot of them, certainly far fewer than in, than in the population more generally, but there are some. There are also, there's a concerted effort among those who peddle fake news and misinformation to attribute fraudulent claims to people who claim to be experts in a particular area, who, you know, if we don't download their CV or resume, we don't necessarily know that they're not. But there's a lot of folks who make those claims in order to have some type of leverage. Again, it's really hard to do all of this fact-checking ourselves. That's why we employ professional fact-checkers. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing to me is that any piece of information before you share it with friends, before you take some kind of action on it, that's when you want to really do the verifying work. And if someone has a friend, a relative, whoever they're talking to, who believes what they 
believe to be misinformation. If I'm talking to someone who I think is misinformed, I think logically I could say, what is the best way to convince that person? You have at least read research and I believe conducted research that talks about what actually is the most effective way to reach those people. What, what have you found there? Let me begin by talking about what doesn't work. <laughs> if you believe everything that I said earlier in this podcast, that misinformation acceptance isn't all about knowledge, mm. that people are motivated to believe certain things. Well, then it follows from that, that hitting people over the head with facts, telling them you're wrong and here's why, that's not always going to work. That's especially not going to work when it comes to misinformation that's politically, socially, religiously contentious. Those areas, politics, culture, religion, those are central to our sense of self. They're central to our identity. They give us the motivation to want to reject some claims that might be true as false and vice versa. What is more effective is to try to make an effort to understand where people are coming from, why they endorse misinformation, and use that as a way to structure our efforts to get them on the side of the science or get them on the side of the facts. And so I can give you an example of what this looks like. But before I do, there's one really important lesson that my colleagues and I have, have learned from this, which is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all strategy to correcting misinformation. If it's all about motivation, if some people are motivated to be misinformed and others are not, those motives vary. They vary by the issue that we're talking about. They vary by the specific piece of information that we're studying. And so because people's motivations vary, there's not going to be a single strategy that works 100% of the time. It implies that there's lots of strategies that can work under some circumstances. So here's what my colleagues and I do. Typically, the first thing we do is we field public opinion surveys where we ask people about whether or not they're misinformed on certain issues, Americans, approximately a third, who believe that the MMR vaccine, that's measles, mumps, and rubella, can cause children to develop autism. What we do and what we've done in our past research is ask people whether or not they, they think that that claim is true, and then to see who's more likely to believe it than others. So for example, people who strongly value what we call moral purity, which is the tendency to view one's body as a temple, to strongly value bodily sanctity, they are more likely to accept that misinformation is true. And that makes a heck of a lot of sense, right? If you're the type of person who values bodily sanctity, the idea of putting a foreign substance, injecting a foreign substance into your body is necessarily discomforting. So what we do is recognizing that linkage, recognizing that some people might be motivated to reject scientific reality because of their moral preferences in this area, we say, hey, we totally get it. Vaccines are icky. They're a violation of bodily sanctity. But, but you know what else is a violation of bodily sanctity? Measles, mumps, and rubella. Right. The type of diseases that vaccines can help prevent. Mm -hmm. And we find that when we do that, we're able to figuratively here, move the needle on, on the number of people who endorse vaccine misinformation, but it's one of many because there are a lot of different 
factors, political, social, psychological, religious, and otherwise, that go into vaccine hesitancy. And that's just one issue. There are, uh, there are myriad factors that underlie climate skepticism and beliefs about the validity of the 2020 election. Mm. There's no one-size-fits-all strategy. We need to do the hard work of figuring out who believes what and why, mm. and then trying out different messages that can potentially move people. And I'll just briefly conclude here by saying that this is a very imperfect approach because it means that we need to constantly be testing different messages, see what works and what doesn't, and then go back, try new things. My colleagues and I pilot dozens of messages that don't work. We report them in the academic papers because we want people to know what worked and, and what didn't. And then we go back to the drawing board and we try to do it again. It's a really imperfect process. No one message is going to move everybody. But if we do it enough, we get enough hands on deck, I think ultimately we'll be able to move misinformation in a lot of politically and socially relevant domains. And you, you're talking about people being motivated to believe misinformation. I'm curious, obviously there are times that you can logically understand why someone doesn't want to believe the truth. They don't want to believe their candidate lost or whatever. But it seems to me that people who believe conspiracy theories, I have found in my own experience, they are the type of person who sees conspiracies everywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about that. What, what is that? So that's a great question. And psychologically, we have a term for this. We refer to this as conspiratorial ideation. Mm. So there's two different quantities we need to talk about here. Lots of Americans, I'm sure myself included, I'm sure you included, I'm sure every person listening to this included, believes a conspiracy theory of some nature. Right. Those are discrete beliefs in one or two conspiracy theories. But the phenomenon that you're referring to is what we call conspiratorial ideation. It's the tendency to view the world through a conspiratorial lens, mm -hmm. to think that people in high places are conspiring to hurt everyday folks like all of us. People who are high in conspiratorial ideation are more likely to endorse many conspiracy theories because they see the world through a conspiratorial lens. And this can help explain why on places in some of the darkest corners of the internet, we see such a strong overlap between beliefs about the 2020 election and intentions to vaccinate against COVID-19, for example. Because people who accept conspiracies in one domain tend to be, if they are high in conspiratorial ideation, the types of people who accept conspiracies in, in other domains. What makes conspiracy theories unique from other types of misinformation is that they imply some amount of nefarious activity on behalf of government and other powerful actors. So one can be misinformed and not necessarily believe a conspiracy theory. And I'll turn to vaccines again as an example because they're what we're all thinking about right now. Um, that people can believe that childhood vaccines for example, cause autism. But to believe a conspiracy, and that would we would classify that as being misinformed broadly, mm -hmm. but there are conspiracy theories that allege that powerful actors know that vaccines cause autism and, and cover that information up. Mm -hmm. That's a conspiracy theory. That's the difference. 
the idea that Bill Gates is in charge of implanting microchips and vaccines and trying to track people, that's a conspiracy theory because it implies nefarious intent. And the types of people who are going to glob on to conspiracy theories like that are the types of people who might also glob on to QAnon mm. conspiracy theories and conspiracy theories of many types, right, left, center, it doesn't matter. If it implies conspiratorial intent and you're high in conspiratorial ideation, then you're going to be more likely to accept them. And we talked about sort of convincing someone that they're misinformed. But if someone has conspiratorial ideation, it seems to me, even if you could convince them of one thing they're wrong about, mm-hmm. they've got 12 others. Like, I I will just say there is someone in my life who has this, at least in my opinion. And it wouldn't matter what I convinced him of. There's still going to be 20 other things he believes that I can never even keep up with all the things that he's that he's down this road on. Uh, he's a relative of mine, so I love him. I'm not going to give up on him, but I do feel like I'm wasting time. Is well, that- that's a great point. And, and a couple things to consider here. So the first is a related phenomenon, which psychologists refer to as the continued influence effect. Mm. The continued influence effect is the idea that let's say we do all the hard work of convincing someone that they're wrong Mm. about something. We've piloted those communication campaigns. We've moved the needle on vaccine skepticism, for example. What we sometimes see in academic studies is that even if you can convince someone that they're wrong, And even if you can convince someone to change their mind, that doesn't necessarily change their behavior. Mm. So in a a great study by Brendan Nyhan, who's a professor at Dartmouth uh, and his his colleagues, they found that they were able to create communication interventions that convinced people that believe that the flu vaccine could give you the flu, that actually that probably wasn't the case. And they were willing to change their mind. And that's amazing. But then when asked, would you go out and get the flu shot this fall? They're like, oh, no. <laughs> and that's psychologically what we refer to as the continued influence effect. Mm-hmm. The idea that the misinformation is continuing to influence how it is that you behave. I think something related is going on when we talk about conspiratorial ideation. We have what my former advisor, Joanne Miller, who's at the University of Delaware now, refers to as a, a monological belief system for conspiracy theories. If you score highly on these measures of conspiratorial ideation, you tend to believe lots of different conspiracy theories, Mm -hmm. irrespective of their partisan direction, irrespective of their social, cultural, religious direction. You tend to believe lots of them. And so even if you're able to correct misinformation in one area, it doesn't change the fact that these represent a codified belief system for you. You're going to continue to believe conspiracy theories in in other areas. So then that begs the important question that you just asked. Is it it a lost cause? (laughs) Are some people lost causes? And I'm here to say, you know, I'm I'm a perennial optimist. I believe very strongly that we can use social scientific methods to correct misinformation. But I'm here to say that there are some people who are unreachable. Mm. And that's just the way life is. We need to take that, except that there are some people who it's going to be very, very hard to move and say, well, then we really, really need to do a good job winning over everybody else and hope that that portion of people who are misinformed isn't enough to exact some type of harm on society. And the uncomfortable truth is that 
Sometimes it might be enough people, but that just makes it all the more important that we try to win over the people whom we can win over. There has been a lot of talk about herd immunity over the last year, and I feel like we're talking about herd immunity for conspiracies right here. Like if you can get enough people to not believe it, believe whatever it is, you're still going to have the people on the fringe who believe that, but it's not going to be a popular movement or a growing movement. Uh, exactly. It can confine misinformation to particular areas of public life, and it doesn't escape out of there. It doesn't mutate, so to speak, and jump onto CNN and other mainstream news sources, then absolutely, that's one potential containment strategy. And, and I'll just throw out there that social media companies are very aware of the role that social media can play in exposing people who may have previously not been misinformed to misinformation. Mm -hmm. And one of the tough decisions that social media companies often have to make is, do we want to take a piece down? Do we want to take down certain posts? And that's usually informed by fact-checking. Mm -hmm. But fact-checking takes a while to do. And could be a day, could be two days. And the way social media works, a day is actually, you know, back, back in the age of print media and, and broadcast media, yeah, a day might have been enough time to fact check a claim and then take it down. But on social media, things spread so quickly, they literally go viral, right? We often talk about mm. the, uh, the virality. It's really hard to wait for fact checkers. One of the things that social media companies have done is apply friction to sharing misinformation. And so what that means is that before you tweet something that many other users have reported as potentially being fraudulent, Twitter asks you if you'd like to read the article first, mm -hmm. if you'd like to consult with whatever fact-checking is out there. That buys the fact-checkers time to dive into that claim and help the social media companies determine whether or not they want to take that piece down. And just kind of a fun anecdote, I write popular press pieces all the time. And just the other day, I was going to go share a piece that I wrote for Washington Post on Twitter. And I was retweeting it from the Washington Post website. And Twitter was like, hey, do you want to check this out first? Do you want to read the <laughs> first? And I was like, I wrote the article. I know what it's <laughs> But it's a good thing that social media companies do that because it buys the fact checkers time and allows the companies to make not a rash decision, but an informed decision. You mentioned uh, QAnon earlier, and to me, that is a fascinating conspiracy, uh, not one I believe in, certainly. And what I'm really fascinated with about that right now is it has what I consider to be some pretty outrageous beliefs to begin with. And then what we've yeah. seen over the last uh, four or five months where the biggest predictions of the QAnon conspiracy theory, I guess, have not come true. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. You, we didn't see sure. Donald Trump get re-inaugurated. We didn't see a bunch of people be arrested. All of these things didn't happen, but I'm sure it's not dead. The, the, no, it's not the well. no, it's absolutely alive and well. And the reason why has to do with what we've been talking about for this, this entire podcast. Mm. People are motivated to believe something. Hope springs eternal. They will find ways to rationalize what happened, to say that there is some event on the horizon that makes mm. everything okay. And that's how we can explain away some of these issues. After Donald Trump was not 
re-inaugurated first in January and then again in March, you had some of the leaders of the QAnon movement, some of the most notable posters, for example, on websites that tend to peddle QAnon conspiracies, saying, hey, QAnon was the friends we made along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a great time. We got to know each other. And um, it just looks like it's not happening. But they were a minority. Mm -hmm. These conspiracies continue to be peddled on those websites, uh, in part because folks are very motivated to believe a certain thing about the world. And they are going to continue to come up with excuses mm -hmm. for why reality does not match uh, what we expect to see. And, and this isn't unique or peculiar to QAnon. Uh, you can't see me, but I'm, I'm wearing a Boston Red Sox hat right now. And last season, I thought the Red Sox really had it. Mm. I, I thought that it was our year, and it was not. We finished in last place in the division. But I made every possible excuse for them that I could. I went into August thinking, okay, you know, maybe there's a chance. If this went right and that went right, okay, we, we, could, we could do this. But it wasn't true. And I knew it wasn't true but I was motivated to believe that it was true. That's what's happening with, with QAnon right now, and that's what happens with many, many conspiracies. I used to be a sports writer, and uh, I saw the same thing. I would have seats on press row right courtside, and a play would happen right in front of me, and the home crowd would insist it was a block rather than a charge or whatever. And I could see it. I knew they were wrong, but right. 10,000 people screaming one thing uh, because that's what they wanted it to be. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not perfect, but the play happened right in front of me. I was sure that the ref got it right, and they were sure that he didn't. <laughs> that perfectly exemplifies uh, my point that sports teams for many of us become a form of identity. Mm. Uh, they become something that ties us to other people. When you're in a stadium of 10,000 fans, that's kind of like being on Facebook mm -hmm. with a bunch of friends sharing the same post. It allows us to connect with each other socially. In fact, my colleagues and I have a forthcoming paper where we argue uh, and, and demonstrate that anti-vaccine beliefs are a form of social identity for many people. Participating in the types of communities online that peddle misinformation becomes, of course, a, a way for people to, to see their motivations to believe a particular thing realized, but it also instills social benefits. You make friends, mm -hmm. you have conversations. It can also be a way to potentially grieve with losses to explain the unexplained. We know that vaccines don't cause autism, but we don't know everything about what does. Mm -hmm. And if you have a child who is autistic, these types of forums may be a way for you to get some amount of either sympathy from others or to experience collective you know, grief or, or collective support, as the case may be. And so these websites function in a very social role as well. And that can help explain why misinformation is so hard to correct. Because the things that lead us to misinformation, to be misinformed, are so central to how it is that we think about ourselves as social beings. And you've mentioned papers you've done several times here, which of course is important and a big part of what you do. But I know you specifically over the last year, two years, you have been everywhere in popular media. Um, and, and, and I know that's important to you. Can you talk about why you tend to accept every interview request you get, or at least the big, the big <laughs> well, ones? You know, 
I, I don't even accept them all at this rate. There's a lot going on in the world right now, but it, it is extremely important to me because because you're absolutely right that academics publish papers all the time, mm. peer reviewed papers. That's how we talk to each other. But talking to academics and other academics, while an important part of academic research, is is not the only goal. I am an employee at a public institution. I think that taxpayers in Oklahoma and elsewhere deserve to know what it is that I've been working on. But more importantly, I believe that the research that my colleagues and I do has important social consequences. I hope that it can help make the world at least a little bit a better place. And in order to do that, we need to get the message out there. We need to tell people what's going on and what we find. But that's really hard to do. Because you can't just copy paste your academic paper mm. and, and send it to the New York Times and say, hey, would you be interested in running a piece on this? Because most people are not academics. We talked earlier about how it's not an effective communication strategy to talk to people who are misinformed the way academics talk to each other. We need to make an effort to talk to people using the words that everybody uses. And that can be really hard because sometimes academic papers are dealing with high-level statistical concepts and theories that people might not be familiar with. And of course, publishing a piece in Washington Post or the New York Times or wherever has word limits. If you're on television, you have time limits. If you're in a podcast, uh, you have time and space constraints as well. Mm -hmm. So we have to think really carefully, boil things down into their essential components and try to get them out there. And I'll just add to that, that one of the best things I think that academics can do is to work with journalists, to work side by side and say, hey, you know, if you're going to be writing about my research, I'd love to give you some, some input on what terms might be correct or incorrect. Every person who's talked to the press has had a claim be potentially misrepresented in some way or sensationalized in some way. Most journalists are, are very open to mm. fact-checking and, and working with you in order to make sure that they're getting things right. And the more that we can facilitate those types of partnerships, I think the more accurate reporting will be and the better academics will be at getting their message out there. So that's just critically important to me. It takes up a lot of time. It's exhausting, especially when you are studying a pandemic while living through one or when you're <laughs> studying an election while living through one. I, I, as you know, study a perfect storm of politics and public health. So it's been a very busy year. It takes up a lot of time, but I think in many ways, it's among the most important things that we do. I'd like to thank Dr. Mata for joining me today. If you want to contact us, you can email pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. Remember, there's no T in Pokes Podcasts. And with that, we'll end with our favorite question, how do the arts and sciences make the world a better place? You know, I think that arts and sciences have a really important role to play in making the world a better place. And, and that starts with the research questions that we ask and how it is that we share them with people. You know, I just talked about why it's so important to make an effort to talk to the press, to make an effort to talk to people outside of the academy about what it is that we do. And one of the reasons why I think that's so important 
is because I know that social scientists, social scientists across the academy are doing research that has important public consequences, asking ourselves questions, not just about why people believe the things they do and what they do, but to then say, how does that impact politics? How does that impact policy? How does it impact the world and social life in ways that matter to people? By asking questions, and this is, you know, I teach classes on, on research design here at OSU. This is one of the most important aspects of research design. Asking a good and compelling research question, motivating it with the literature, designing a sound you know, experimental or observational design, that's all great. But is your research speaking to some pressing social issue, political issue, uh, or the like? I think that's really, really important. And that's how arts and sciences can help contribute um, to, to, to social life more generally. There is absolutely value to basic research, asking questions that we don't necessarily know the answer to, that we don't necessarily know the policy implications of when we're doing it. But in that case, making an effort to say, look, we'd like to do this research. We don't know what we're going to find, but here's why we think it's going to matter, or here are potential domains in which it could matter. I think that's, that's really, really important. Uh, so arts and sciences, we are, as social scientists and, and uh, humanities folks, I think we are very good at, at thinking through those types of issues before we begin our research. And, and that's why it's so valuable. But the way to elevate that value is to then take it outside the academy and say, here's how we can get others on board. Here's how we can explain it to many different people policymakers, journalists, and, and ordinary folks like all of us. That to me is what's so key.